If everyone could please stand for the reading of God's word. Our reading today is from James chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? But he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And this is the word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. Thank you so much, uh, Jacqueline. Hey, if you're a visitor, you may have surmised that uh, we are in the middle of a series in the book of James. I want to start today by just telling you a story. So there was an old Persian ruler who wanted to impress a visiting dignitary. So he took this dignitary to a glass cage. And inside the glass cage was a lion resting comfortably with a little lamb. Well, the dignitary was blown away, and he said, how is it possible for a lion and a lamb to be in the same cage together? And the old ruler said, well, I do have a secret. I put in a new lamb every morning. I know. Listen, so here's the deal. When it comes to relationships, we've all been like that lion. But the crazy thing is, every one of us also knows what it's like to be the lamb, in relationships. I mean, if, if we were honest, every one of us in the room would have to confess that we have played the part of both the lion and the lamb. And so the question that we need to answer is, why do we do that to each other? Why do we burn down relationships like that? Well, this morning, James is going to tell us why, and he's going to point us to the solution. In fact, James actually begins with this question, James chapter 4, verse 1. He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Now, this is kind of a hypothetical uh, question. He knows the answer. He's going to give us the answer right now. Uh, he says, don't they come from your desires that battle within you? Uh, this word battle is a military term, and so a little later I'm going to use military terms to describe the way we sometimes want to argue and fight with each other. But essentially, James is saying this morning, look, you fight to get your way. You fight to get what you want. You fight to get your desires met. He's basically saying you fight because you want what you want. Uh, because of selfishness. In fact, I would argue that selfishness is the essence of a sin. And here he says uh, that these desires battle. That word desire has a deeper meaning than you might uh, think. And the language that James spoke and wrote in, uh, the Greek word there is the word hedonon. Uh, from which we get the word hedonism, sort of suggesting more than just like, you know, an occasional desire. No, this is a man or a woman that just lives to fulfill their desires. They're just like one desire after another. For them, fulfilling desires has kind of become a way of life. Let me kind of illustrate this for you. So several years ago, my wife and I put up our first hummingbird feeder. And most of you know, if you've ever seen a hummingbird, they're beautiful birds, petite, small. But let me tell you something, they are not kind to one another. They are not kind to one another at all. They're absolutely beautiful, but they are hedonists. They're only interested in fulfilling their desires. I mean, these guys are dive-bombing each other. You walk out on our back deck, it's like a war zone out there. We have four different feeders spaced apart, but they're like chattering at each other and driving each other away because they are so territorial. They are so aware of their desires and needs. They don't care whether any other birds are being fed or not. For hummingbirds, it's every bird for himself. 
And the reality is we sometimes act just like them. We get territorial, we get self-centered, we become self-serving. And then look at how James describes the fruit of that. Oh, by the way, back to the hummingbird thing. It's kind of funny. My oldest son was here for a week uh, recently, and we were kind of observing this behavior of these hummingbirds. And he goes, Dad, it's like you guys have gang wars going on in the backyard. You got the crips and the bloods. I mean, it's that bad. You, you don't even want to be out there sometimes. It's so bad. Anyway, uh, then he's, he talks about the fruit of this in verse 2. Look what he says. You want something, but you don't get it. So you kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel, you fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. So here's the fruit. This is the fruit of selfishness. This is what our world, he's describing our world. It's really important that you, uh, you get this. In other words, he says, hey, you want something, but you don't get it. That's unfulfilled desire. He says, you want things, you crave things, but those cravings go unsatisfied. This is a picture of our world. Then he goes on. Here's another picture of our world. You kill and you covet. Now, the Jewish Christians that James was writing to, they understood these two commands to be the breaking of God's law. These were uh, two of the Ten Commandments. And the word covet means to yearn or to lust after something that someone else has. And in fact, he links here coveting and murder. So that could mean one of two things. It can mean that because they're grouped together, that James is describing people that want something of someone else's so badly that we wish them dead. Like in our heart, we would kill them in our heart. Or it could be taken literally, and we know this is true. Sometimes people covet to the extent that uh, they do kill other people. In fact, uh, when police are investigating a homicide, we know this, right? They always look for a motive. Hey, was there a life insurance policy involved? You know, was there money or property that was going to be uh, inherited? So that can literally be true as well. And then he goes on and says, you quarrel and you fight. So again, he's just telling us what the world looks like. The world quarrels, and the world fights. And if you don't believe me, just peruse social media for about five minutes and you'll see that very, very quickly. It amazes me how cruel people can be to one another on social media. That's what he's talking about. Then he moves to another habit that's common in our world. He says, you do not have because you don't ask God. In other words, you live independently of God. You may believe that God exists, but practically you live as if he doesn't. You don't even bother to ask him for anything. You just try to assert your will. You try to manipulate other people to get what you want. And all of these things are symptoms of worldliness. The world lives with unfulfilled desire. The world kills and covets. It sees stuff. It doesn't always value people. The world quarrels and fights. People in the world assert themselves over one another. They, they take their desires and put them over the desires of others. That's what the world does. And then finally, the world just goes on as if God doesn't exist. They don't ask God for anything because it's all about them. So James would say, if you see two people in a relationship with different desires, get out the popcorn. I mean, it's going to be interesting, right? Uh, so, so what are some things people want? Here's what I want to do in the next few minutes. So uh, I made a list of things that I sometimes want. Maybe you'll relate to some of them. Maybe you want, but won't. But let's see if we connect here. So I sometimes want to spend money on the things I want not the things my wife thinks she wants. In fact, sometimes as my wife and I have these conversations, she'll say, well, honey, that's not really a need, right? It's a want. And unfortunately, James would agree with her. 
So I want to spend money on what I want to spend money on. I want a vacation in the places I want a vacation, not necessarily the same places my wife wants to vacation. Are you picking up on a theme here in these verses? I sometimes want to be right. Like, look, I'm not asking for a lot. All I want is a kind word, a warm bed, and unlimited power. That's all that I want, right? I just want to be right. Now, one of my favorite comedians is a guy by the name of Nate Bargaski. One of the reasons I like him is he is squeaky clean. And I want to show you a clip from one of his shows where he talks about a fight he had with his wife where it was really important for him to be right. So check this out. (laughs) All right. So we got in the fight over the phrase, one fell swoop. Just over the same. And if you're, look, if you're a newlywed, you're like, well, that doesn't make sense. You're right. It doesn't. This is a double-digit married fight. (laughs) This is when you've already done all the dish fighting or the putting your clothes away fighting. This is when they're trying to mentally break you. Uh, They got you almost how they want you, and this is the one that sends it over the edge. So my wife, she wanted to go visit her parents one weekend, and her her parents are divorced, and which has been hardest on me, to be honest. That's something people don't talk about, you know? When you marry into divorce, I mean, they divorced because of her, not me, so why do I have to go to 50 different houses? So... She wanted to go visit her parents and shit. I want to do it in one fell swoop. Now, I've never heard my wife say the phrase one fell swoop. We've been together 20 years. She's never said it. And it felt like someone that day told her, hey, you should, you should start using one fell swoop more. And she goes, I'm about to call my husband. It goes, perfect. Use it 40 to 50 times on him. So she calls me and she goes, I want to go visit my parents. And I want to do it in one fell swoop. And I go, all right, let's do it in one fell swoop. She goes, I want to do it in one fell swoop. I go, let's do it in one fell swoop. You know, let's swoop it up. I'm down. And she kept saying it, one fell swoop, one fell swoop. I mean, over and over again. And then when she went to describe this one fell swoop trip, she goes, she goes, we go to my mom's, come home, then go to my dad's. And so I just like waited and she didn't say anything. And I just go, that's not what one fell swoop means. And instead of possibly just being wrong, she goes, I I know what one fell swoop means. I go, yeah, it doesn't sound like you do, all right? We have the same last name. I can't have you out there in a one fell swoop conversation. What do you think two birds, one stone mean? Let's just go through them all. I don't know if you know any of these. She hangs up on me. So I get home. And you know when you walk home and you've been in a fight and you're like, all right, how long is this fight? Is it happening still? Is it over? I don't know. I got to fill it out, you know? She never uses words like sorry. I'd, I'd love to hear that. And that's a word she definitely doesn't know what it means. And I say it all the time. I walk around the house with just a sack of sorries, just handing them out all day. I try to give her some. Like, would you like to carry some of these? She's like, I don't have pockets, so I'm good. Uh, we didn't talk that whole night. I mean, we're just sitting there. Our daughter's like, we're watching TV and eating. And I'm like, hey, you know your mom's crazy, right? And then she's like, did you do your homework? Or you don't be dumb like your dad. And then your, da- your daughter's just like, are y'all the lunatics? Uh, so I'm laying on the couch. And my wife just came over and she kisses me goodnight. And then she went to bed. And that was it, you know? That was like, I felt like it was her sorry, I guess. But she didn't say it. And so I was like laid there and I'm just thinking about it. And you think about it a lot because you're like, all right. Because you learn the longer you get married, sometimes it's like just let stuff go. You know, who cares? And the next morning I get up and I kind of still want to talk about it because we we didn't talk all night, you know? So I went into her. I was like, look, uh, I got to tell you, I mean, it's just not what it means, you know? (laughs) That got it going real good. so good about this argument, you know? I thought about it all night. I was like, you got this one in the bag, man. You should bring it back up. I'm not trying to date her anymore. I like to win a fight. We're going to die together. I almost woke her up in her sleep. That's how much I was so excited. I almost just started shaking her going, it's not what it means. Our marriage almost ended in one fell swoop. So... Isn't that awesome? Probably hit a little too close to home for some of us. Sure, yeah. So sometimes we just want to be right, and I think that's true for all of us. Sometimes we just want to be left alone, right? 
I don't want to talk, I don't want to interact, and if you make me talk, I'll bite your head off, right? That kind of thing. Sometimes we just, uh, we, we want to get things done that are important to us. Maybe our spouse doesn't agree. They have a different list they're working off, off of. That can be fun, right? That can create some uh, interesting moment. Uh, I would say this, sometimes I just want people to be less irritating, Sometimes my wife also wants people to be less irritating, and by people, I mean mostly me. So to sum it up, James says, look, we fight for a couple reasons. One, people get in the way of what we want, or, you know, because they have different goals, or they disagree, or they won't cooperate, and that means we have to fight to get what we want, that we have to convince someone else that what we want is way more important than what they want, right? Right? Now, how do we do that? How is it that we quarrel and fight? So remember I said that James used this uh, battle term, right? He said our desires battle within us, this military term. So I'll describe some tactics uh, most of us in the room have used as we fight and as we argue. Strategy number one is just the bomb. So, you know, when you engage in a fight, you just basically nuke people. You yell, you scream, you throw things, maybe even worse, Uh, You just let loose, and it's just total destruction. And for some of you, you know, when people tell you, hey, you scream and you yell, you just don't get it because to you, like, your tone sounds normal because you're angry most of the time, right? And so, uh, you know, when we try to tell you, hey, you're kind of yelling, you're like, no, no, I don't get that. But for the rest of us, you kind of scare us, okay? That's one way we argue. Strategy number two is just hand-to-hand combat. So maybe you're married to somebody or you work with somebody or uh, you're in a relationship, you have a roommate, and you just push one another's buttons. Sometimes you do it by accident, but in other times, sometimes once in a while you even like do that on purpose, right? Uh, Anybody watch Seinfeld when it was popular back in the 90s or see the reruns? If you want to know this tactic, George Costanza, his parents... Remember his parents? If you want to see examples of hand-to-hand combat, turn on any episode of Seinfeld that has his parents, you know, in it. Well, now, strategy number three is one we've all done, and it's probably one of the most destructive and dangerous, and that is you just boycott. In other words, this is really powerful. Basically, what happens is you just withhold. Like, you starve the enemy. You give them the silent treatment And the reality is some of us came from homes where mom and dad rarely spoke. They rarely interacted because they were giving each other the silent treatment. And they'd been giving each other the silent treatment for the last decade. And what's so interesting about this approach to me is that people actually think they're being obedient to God because they're living in the same house together And yet, they're carrying around chronic anger and bitterness and unforgiveness in their hearts. And some of us came from homes just like that, right? And then strategy number four is sometimes we just call in the supporting troops. So in other words, in order to prove that I'm right... You know, I'm going to go out and I'm going to talk to other people. I'm going to try to engage their verbal support. I'm going to get as many people as I can on my side. I'm going to kind of politic my perspective, right? And that's how I'm going to build my argument. So lots of ways that we can fight and argue. I want you to look again at the end of James 4 too. He says, you don't have because you do not ask God. Now, let me say this right out. There, so sometimes people sing songs about this and, and so on and so forth, but people talk about unanswered prayer. Listen, there is no such thing as unanswered prayer. God answers every prayer. Sometimes he just tells us no. It's really important to understand this. It's a big deal. So why, so, and James tells us why God sometimes doesn't answer our prayers because sometimes our prayers are all about us. They're not about him. They're not about other people. It's all about me. In fact, in the original language here, the word wrong um, or selfish prayers, right, is, means diseased. Like your prayers are diseased. 
Um, so, and the reason is, you know, God's just not in the business, is he, of fueling our selfishness. Um, and we know what happens to kids when every desire gets met, right? Well, God knows what happens to his kids when every desire gets met. met. And so he describes a world where there's constant craving, unfulfilled desire. It acts as if God doesn't exist. It quarrels and fights. The world kills and covets. And then James says something that sounds so, it's like, hey, James, man, you should like take a Vicodin. You should take it down a notch. I mean, it just sounds so strong, but it's strong for a reason. Here's what he says um, in verse 4. You adulterous people. What's he talking about adultery? We'll come back to that. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. So why does he call them adulterous? Well, it's because they are acting just like the world acts. These are people engaging, they're in the church, but they're engaging in the same kind of behavior, the same kind of turf wars, the same kind of territorialism, the same kind of asserting their desires over the desires of others that the world is. Um, you know, they are fighting and quarreling, they're coveting and killing, at least in their hearts, and they too are living selfishly. They're acting just like the world. Now, it's important to connect some dots here. So in the Old Testament, God's people made God promise after promise after promise. God made a covenant with his people, so he made them some promises, and then they made him some promises back. That sounds like a marriage, right? Two people stand together, and they make promises to one another. That's what God's people did with God. And, and throughout the Old Testament, if you just read it just a few minutes, what you're going to see is God's people uh, bailed on him again and again and again and again. They just broke promise after promise after promise. And what do you call a, a promise breaker or somebody who is unfaithful in a marriage? Well, you call them an adulterer. Now, um, so, so I want to talk about the relationship between adultery and another word that sounds a lot like it, idolatry. So, because uh, there's a relationship, and then I'm going to show you a verse to prove it. So, anytime God's people put something before God, find their security in anything other than God, God calls that an idol. An idol happens in, for all of us when we take a good thing and we make it an ultimate thing. Okay, so like, like we're trying to get from it what only God provides, right? Um, so um, God calls that, that an idol. That's what an idol is. Anytime we try to extract some, something from, it could be a marriage, it could be a child, it could be a relationship, it could be money, it could be pleasure, it could, what, it could be beauty, it could be any, lots and lots of things. So in the Old Testament, idolatry and adultery are closely linked when it comes to God and his people. And I want to show you a verse in Ezekiel 23, and uh, this is just how dark idolatry can get. They committed adultery with their idols. They even sacrificed their children, whom they bore to me, as food for them. Here's the thing about our idols. It's true today, just like it was then. We make our idols, and then our idols, every one of them demands sacrifices from us. Every one of them. And you may look at that verse and go, well, okay, but yeah, but nobody would do that today. But isn't it true that you've known dads who sacrifice their children on the altar of work? And then when they come home from work, they're so worn out and exhausted, they just don't have anything for their kids. Some of us may have grown up in a home like that. See, here's the reality. Anytime you or I erect an idol, 
Again, it could be a marriage, a child, a career, money, pleasure, happiness, beauty, romance. It could be anything. Anytime we make one of those things more important from God, try to extract from one of them what only God can give us, that is an idol and that makes us adulterous. So, um, idol- so I said this earlier, idolatry turns a good thing into an ultimate thing. And here's the thing about our idols. Every one of our idols demands sacrifices from us. They always do. Nobody put this better than someone who wasn't even a Christian. So there was an American writer by the name of David Foster Wallace... He got to the top of his profession. If you spend any time on a college campus, you're, you've probably read some of his books. He was award-winning. He was a best-selling postmodern novelist, uh, known for just boundary-pushing storytelling. He was not a Christian. It uh, wasn't even religious, but he was a keen observer of life. And a few years before the end of his life, he gave a now famous commencement speech at Kenyon College. And here is an excerpt of what he said to these graduating college students. You ready? Everybody worships. They're like, what? The only choice we get is what we will worship. And the compelling reason, he says, for maybe choosing some sort of God to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, then you will never have enough. You will never feel you have enough. It's the truth. You will work yourself into an early grave to get more of it. Worship your own body and beauty or sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. You'll never be pretty enough. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before your loved ones finally plant you in the ground. You worship power, and you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect as, as seen, being seen as smart. You'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. And then he says this to kind of conclude this part of his talk. He says, look, The insidious thing about all these forms of worship is not that they are evil or sinful. It's that they're unconscious. They're subconscious. They are default settings, he writes, he said, hardwired into the human psyche. I think these are incredible words. This guy isn't even a religious guy. And this is what he's saying. Now, a couple of years after he gave this speech, um, David Foster Wallace took his own life. And this non-religious man's parting words to me are pretty terrifying. Whatever you choose to worship, it will eat you alive. This is why Jesus said, look, unless you're worshiping me, unless you're devoted to me, unless I'm the center of your life, then whatever you worship is going to abandon you in the end. Like, look, look, if we worship money and what that can do for us, there's going to come a day, friend, where your money's going to abandon you. And that day is when you die because you can't take any of that with you. You may be one of the fortunate people here in the room who have a 3% marriage, right? Like, like it's good, it's, it's fulfilling all the time. You never argue. You're always on the same page if that kind of marriage even exists. But if you're fortunate enough to have one like that, right? But listen, one day one of you is going to abandon the other. Or, Or maybe you'll both abandon one another at the same time. Every one of our idols abandons us in the end, but not our Jesus. Then look at verse 5, James 4, 5. 
Or do you think scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? I do want to say a word because I had a conversation after first service about this verse. So some of you are going to notice in the NIV, the, the word spirit is not capitalized. So there's a lot of conversation around this verse. Uh, a lot of scholars say he's talking about the spirit of man, man's own spirit here. That, so in other words, the spirit of man is a spirit that tends to envy. And so that's one, that's one possible view. Then if you look at some other translations, like the King James, New King James, um, a few others, uh, the, the yes there is capitalized. And so they take the view that this is the spirit of God that he's placed within us, and that the Spirit of God within us envies intensely. Uh, There's a lot to commend either view. You can see the view the NIV took. I'm just going to take, in this instance, the New King James Version view and talk about this as the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit that he places this within us. Although, again, wise, godly people on either side here disagree, right? So that's fine. Um, But so let me just give you some background. So when you accepted Christ as your Savior and Lord, he placed his Holy Spirit within you. That means that as you and I live the Christian life, we don't have to do that by ourselves. We don't have to do that out of a position of need. It means that because the Holy Spirit lives in me, I'm not destined to a life of spiritual poverty and defeat because I can live out of the resources of the Holy Spirit. I don't have to live as a pauper out of my own inability, my own um, inability is the best I can do there, right? I, I don't have to live out of that. I can live out of the ability and the power and the strength of the Holy Spirit. But what is the Holy Spirit supposed to do? Well, he does a number of things. In fact, I would just say this. Every good thing you receive as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, comes through the Holy Spirit. Everything. Every single thing. But one of his ministries is to magnify Christ. Like the Holy Spirit's a little shy. Like he'll hide behind something and he'll just go, I know you can still see me, but pretend you can't, right? And he'll point to Jesus and just go, look at him. Look at Jesus, follow Jesus, do what he says, be obedient to him, live your life for him. So his job, right, is to magnify and lift up Jesus. And so um, the Spirit longs more than anything else that um, we magnify Jesus with with our very, very lives. And so that envy, it's not an envy based in insecurity, and it's, it's an envy based in wanting something for us. In other words, he wants us, the Holy Spirit that lives within us, wants us to live a life that's pleasing to Christ so much that he env- he, he's jealous for that. He's jealous for that. He's jealous for us to live that kind of life that we might wholly belong to Christ. Uh, and, and, so, and he, so he guards that relationship jealously. And so when we act more like children of the world rather than children of God, in other words, when we're territorial and we're asserting ourselves and we're quarreling and we're fighting and, uh, there's, uh, and we're going to identify the root of all that in just a minute, he says, look, look, the Spirit wants better for you than that. And God's placed his spirit within you. And then the last verse, verse 6, look what it says. This is so encouraging. But he, meaning God, gives more grace. This is so beautiful. Even So he just called these folks adulterous. He just called them out for acting more like the world than children of God, sons of God. And yet he's saying, But you know what? My grace is going to be sufficient for you. I'm going to give you more grace. So in this last verse, there's the promise, and it's an amazing promise. Uh, I'm going to give you more grace. And then there's a warning. And it's a warning that we need to take very, very seriously. He goes on to say, God opposes the proud. What do pride people do? They think they're right. They need to be right. They think that uh, their desires are more important than everybody else's desires. Uh, 
Pride argues to get what it wants. It quarrels and fights. Pride covets because they don't deserve that. I deserve that. I need to have that. See, all, all this worldliness, all this behavior is tied up in this thing called pride. He, so it says God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Now, um, God's grace means this. If you took grace and you made it an acronym, you know, G stands for, R stands for, it would be this. God's riches at Christ's expense. God's riches at Christ's expense. That's what grace is. That means there is no sin in your life or mine with more power than the cross of Christ, the shed blood of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. There is no sin mightier than the grace of God. This is so important. I mean, that's just the good news of the gospel. And then look at the rest of verse 6. And this response is kind of described. It's not commanded here. He's going to command it a little later. And next week, Pastor Craig's going to go do a deep dive on this thing called humility. I'm just going to touch on it today. But the quote here appears to come from Proverbs 3.34. It's not an exact quote, but it's similar. In Proverbs 3, here's the way it reads, he mocks proud mockers, but gives grace to the humble. So here's what James is saying. Look, the world boasts The world glories in itself. It produces proud people. Pride argues and fights. Pride covets and kills. Pride doesn't ask God for anything. And when it does acknowledge God, it does so for itself. And then the final warning, God opposes people like that. This is, listen, God opposes the proud. Let me say that again in case you didn't get it. God opposes the proud. That means when I am living and acting like the world does, quarreling and fighting, asserting my desires over the desires of everybody else, arguing, fighting, all that, that I am living my life in opposition to the God of the universe. I don't know about you, but that is sober. Like, like who wants to do that? God opposes the proud. But then, here's the beautiful thing. But then he gives grace to the humble. So listen, what's the proper response to the grace of God, to the Spirit of God? It's humility. It's humility. Hey, I know the world doesn't revolve around me. Hey, I know that my desires aren't the only desires in the room that matter and are important. Right? That's the essence of humility. And I want you to think about this. It was the pride of Lucifer that caused him to rebel against God in the heavenly realms with a third of the angels. It is your pride, it is my pride that causes me to try to live independently of God. Independently of God. And this entire uh, you know, text, uh, this, his entire argument has just been revealing what pride looks like, right? So while fighting and quarreling are part of this world, godliness, on the other hand, is peace and service. Look at this, Psalm 133.1. How good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. That's what the Holy Spirit wants. That's what the Holy Spirit is jealous for, unity oneness. Brothers and sisters in Christ building one another up. Godliness is peace. Worldliness is fighting and quarreling. And the Spirit, thankfully, places within us a desire to submit to God, a desire to humbly walk with Him. And so it's, so, it's really cool. It's almost like a circle of life thing. God gives us grace We recognize that grace. We respond humbly. And then God gives us more grace. We recognize that and we respond even more humbly. So there's this response, grace of God, humility, grace of God, humility. And it just just keeps fueling itself. That's what he's telling us here. So let me just ask you a couple of questions. Have you ever acknowledged, yeah, there is a God and it's not me? And I know, no, no, his name is Jesus. 
And I know, no, no, that Jesus died on a cross to pay the penalty for my pride, my rebellion against God, my sinfulness, my selfishness. Jesus died to take all of that. In other words, God punished him instead of me. Jesus took the punishment that you and I deserved. That's the grace of God. That's the mercy of God. How do you respond to that? Well, you go, man, I'm going to live surrendered. And so here's what I want to do. I'm going to call up our team. And while our team's coming up, in a moment we're going to take communion. Listen, there are a couple ways to get, and again, Craig's going to do a deep dive on this next week, but I want to say a quick word about it right now while the team's coming up. So two ways we get humility. One is just by serving other people. And so is there a rhythm of service? Do you have a ministry in your life? Are you, is there a way that you're regularly serving other people? So for example, Daniel talked about school teachers and administrators, right? They're serving kids every single day. That's a ministry. But I want to tell you a couple of others that we're, where we have need. So the Women's Journey to Hope House. Debbie Whitesides, the chairman of the board, attends our church here. She was telling me they have a uh, just an overwhelming need for volunteers right now. Now, obviously, you can't be a man and serve in that ministry, um, but if you're a woman here and you're looking for a way to serve God, I would encourage you to talk to Debbie Whiteside about the Women's Journey to Hope House. And then secondly, the second thing I would encourage you to do, listen, we... So we decided years ago we want to be a church that partners with parents, a church that partners with parents to point their children toward Jesus. And so we want to have, now it's aspirational right now, I know that, but we want to have a world-class children's ministry. We want to be as good as anybody in the country at ministering to children. What I'm saying to you is when your kids are over there, we're not babysitting them for you. We're pointing them to Jesus with you. And so that needs to be world class. But for it to be world class, we need more people serving over there. And so if we're going to get that calling, if we're going to accomplish that calling. So some of you are here. Look, it's no skin off your back to be here a little earlier on Sunday. Serve in one service and attend another. Do that. Serving, a rhythm of service is how. It's one of the ways we gain humility. We learn to view life from a humble perspective. So either one of those. All right, let me talk to you briefly about communion because that's what we're going to do. So when um, Paul talked about communion, he, he used a word. He said, it's about remembering. And so we're going to remember what our Jesus has done together. The way we do that here, you're going to notice we have tables in the front, tables in the back. And um, we would ask you, we're going to invite everybody to come in just a moment. And we're going to take the stage and we're going to convert it to an altar. And so when you come and you receive the communion, we're going to ask you to take that and either uh, go back around the sides or back down the middle, back to your seat, or to take it. And if you prefer to come up here to the altar with your family, come up and just kneel down. But we want all of you to hold on to that communion because we're going to take it together. I'm going to come back up at some point in our worship And I'm going to prompt us, and we're going to do it together because there's power in together. There's power in doing that as a family. So let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for every man, woman, child here. God, would you plant humility? Would you help us even, even as we frame communion? God, to be men and women that would receive it humbly, recognizing your grace poured out on us in what Jesus has done. So God, help us remember you well together. We ask and we pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. And so now come and receive the altar is open.
Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's remember our Jesus together. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink together. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Amen.
nothing lasts forever. Everything and nothing lasts. My life is yours, completely yours. Oh, I surrender. I surrender all. We choose to trust you, Lord. Nothing less, everything and nothing less. My best, my all. You deserve my every breath, my life, my song. So again, Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your unspeakable gift, your grace, your mercy poured out on us through and because of Jesus, his death, his burial, his resurrection. We give you great, great thanks. Thank you for the opportunity to remember that together today. We give you thanks and praise, and we do it in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. Hey, just one more quick word about humility. So humility, you heard me say earlier, it really is, it's the secret sauce of Christianity. In other words, humility is either what makes Christianity attractive, whereas a a prideful Christian makes Christianity repulsive. And we just have to be, you know, aware of that. And to that end, so I was having a conversation with my wife this past week. One of the things I love about my wife is she calls me out on my junk. And I, and I appreciate it. I didn't, haven't always, but boy, in these days I do. So she kind of called me out on a little junk I want to talk to you about. So last week after the sermon, she said, hey, you know, there was a point last week, she was saying, where you said something that sounded just a little bit prideful. She said, I know that's not in your heart. I know you didn't want to, but, but you did. I kind of winced a little, and that made my heart wince. Um, so I just want to um, ask, you know, my forgiveness for uh, a prideful appearance in a small statement that I made last week and uh, retract that pride. If you don't know what I'm talking about, God bless you. If you do, this is a public apology for that. So, because listen, if you're not seeing humility in me, that's not a good thing. So, God bless you guys. Thanks again for worshiping with us.